Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Survival Show podcast. I am your host today, Craig Cottle, solo. David is neck deep. When I say neck deep, I mean like neck deep in developing the website. Check this out, tinysurvival.com. Check it out. Go over there right now. Check it out, tinysurvival.com. Whenever you get off the road, if you're driving, uh, when you get a chance, check out tinysurvival.com. Uh, he has been just doing nothing but that, I think, for about two weeks. So he's really inundated and in finalizing that because he had a due date for some important things that were getting ready to happen with it. And so he hit me up and said, dude, I just I can't make it. I'm not going to be able to do a podcast this week. So no problem. No problem. Uh, we usually keep a list of people uh, to interview that that uh, we can call upon and most of that takes quite a bit of coordination, so I just couldn't get anybody on short notice um, that was on our regular list. I had wanted to interview Tracy again somewhere in the next couple months. Uh, my friend Tracy Trimble, he's been on the podcast before, and uh, I just, because we're friends, I called him up and said, Hey, dude, you want to do a podcast real quick? <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, he was like, Yeah, I can't do it today, but how about tomorrow? So we set up a time to get together. And he told me when we first saw, he said, man, I've been having some sinus issues, so we'll see if it, we can make it happen. So we got together and uh, got ready to record, and he is snotting and snorting and all that kind of stuff, and he just could not do it. There was just no way. I mean, he was. I felt so daggone bad for him. So here we are together. That's you, and that's me, but here we are. But here's the cool thing about it. Uh, several been big things have been going on with me as well. Um, we launched our new store on the Nature Reliance website. Uh, that's my organization, the Nature Reliance School. And you can go over to naturereliance.org, look at gear store on the top right on the menu. You can see the things that we're selling there, and it's going to be expanding considerably. But we built that store primarily to sell the new knife design that David and I have mentioned several times on this store. And I'm very happy to say it launched with great and wonderful success. It's been very humbling. I was hoping we could reach the minimal order quantity of 25 uh, sometime in the next month or so. And we hit that 25 on the first day. The first day, folks, I was tickled to death with it. So thank you. If you're one of those, you're listening right now and you bought one of those blades. And if you didn't, go over and check it out because this is going to be the hottest thing since since uh, white bread in a bag, man. I'm just telling you, this stuff is, this blade has been fantastic. I, I put a lot of time and effort, you know, nearly 50 years of my life studying in the woods to design a knife that I would be happy to put my name on and say, yeah, Craig Cottle designed this and there it is. So yeah, check it out. Thank you for your support. Anybody that listens to us here on the Survival Show podcast, just use the code THE SURVIVAL SHOW. As a discount code, you'll get 5% off anything in the store. So check it out. Do it. Do it right now. Come on. Go on and do that. But here's what we're going to do today. Because I already prepped this, Tracy and I have been developing a podcast ourselves over on Nature Reliance School, Nature Reliance Media. And we've recorded two or three and put them out there and, and just kind of learning. We want to cover some subjects way outside the bounds of survival over there. So we've been covering a lot of things and developing a lot of content for that. But one of the things I want to do there, probably on a weekly basis, is do some historical uh, sharing of things that have come through, particularly American history. And I'm sure there will be others as we move along. But I still want to, I've done a couple of these for the Survival Show, 
And I thought I would do one of these today for the survival show because I still want to do them on occasion, maybe once a month or maybe other month or something here on the Survival Show podcast because I think there's very valuable lessons learned from reading history and seeing some of the things that have happened to um, you know, military history, just frontier history particularly uh, entertains me and educates me because I'm, you know, here in Kentucky is what the frontier was for a long time coming out of, you know, the East Coast and what have you. But nevertheless, I've got a story about a man, and quite frankly, I don't know if you know who this is. I know to me, it's somebody that I know. I know this name really well. The name is George Rogers Clark. George Rogers Clark is the name of the high school I graduated from here in Clark County, Winchester, Kentucky. And um, George Rogers Clark did and led a fantastic campaign uh, for the United States military, the early colonial military. And he just did some things and led men, and he just must have been an incredibly inspiring leader. So there's one story in particular of how he captured uh, from General Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, Vincennes. And what I wanted to do was share some things that I've been reading on this. Uh, this is important for two reasons. This story is just unbelievably, it, it's the, the situation that these men dealt with is so harsh that it just blows my mind. And secondly, George Rogers Clark, for years after this story, talked about his long knives. Not his particular possession of knives, but his men that he referred to as the long knives. And these were the men that did what I'm getting ready to read for you. Okay, And the name of my knife is Shamanese, which is Shawnee for long knives. And it is a long knife. It's a 12-inch blade. And so because I have been, much like David, I have been neck deep in developing that project and getting it off the ground in the last couple of weeks, it, uh, it's just heavy on my mind. I thought, man, I'll just share some stories about George Arthur Clark here, look at the history of it, and see what we can learn from it, because there is a ton that we can learn from it. So what I've done is uh, I gathered uh, some writings that came out of uh, the newspaper here, one of the newspapers here in Kentucky at the time in the late 1700s, the Louisville Literary News. And so basically what they did is they shared some journals from a person that was on, the, on an expedition with George Rogers Clark, and it's dated 27th of January, 1779. Uh, leading up to March 20th of 1779. So I'll, I'll read the introduction that actually appeared in the newspaper, and this appeared in the newspaper in uh, 1840. So the journal kept by Major Bowman during a portion of the campaign, the taking of Post St. Vincent, also known as Vincennes, and revised by some unknown person who was in the expedition. The manuscript of this journal was at one time in the possession of the Historical Society of Kentucky, but was unfortunately lost. We published below a journal of the expedition of General Clark against the British post at Vincennes in 1779, commencing with his march from Kaskaskia. It was kept by Joseph Bowman, one of the captains in the expedition, and is referred to by Mr. Butler in his, the title of this book is History of Kentucky, as Major Bowman's Journal, the writer having subsequently held the rank of Major. At the time when his journal commences, Clark was in possession of Kaskaskia and Host. 
Cahokia. Vincennes had once been gained over to him through the influence of a French priest, but as Clark had not soldiers to spare sufficient to maintain garrison there, it had been retaken by Governor Hamilton. The journal will explain the sequel. So the manuscript of this journal, much defaced and in some places illegible, is in the possession of the Kentucky Historical Society. The Vincennes Historical Antiquarian Society has a copy, which we transcribe for them and for the use of our friend Judge Law at that place. So that's the introduction that was actually placed in the newspaper. Again, that that was put in there in 1840. And what we're going to be, what I'm going to be reading for you here, is some little pieces and parts from that journal. And uh, there's so much information here, and I, I think it's worthy of trying to figure out what kind of things can benefit us from a survival perspective. You know, it's the survival show, right? And and I'll be doing my best to share those with you as well. But as I'm reading these things, do your best to try to put yourself in the position of the men that were on this expedition. And I'll try to set the stage for you as best I can, too, to help you with that. But uh, it's just, I think it's just telling on the mindset and how incredibly strong-willed these men were that were on this expedition. It's just, again, it's incredible. So, uh, here we go. Mr. Vigo, a Spanish subject who has been at Post St. Vincent on his lawful business, arrived and gave us intelligence that Governor Hamilton, with 30 regulars and 50 volunteers and about 400 Indians, had arrived in November and taken that post. With Captain Helm and such other Americans who were w there with arms, two or three words ineligible, and disarmed the settlers and inhabitants, on which Colonel Clark called a council of his officers, and it was concluded to go and attack Gov Governor Hamilton at St. Vincent for fear, if it was let alone until spring, that he, with all the force that he could bring, would cut us off. All right, so basically what's happening here is... Uh, Hamilton took over Vincennes, uh, also called uh, Post-St. Vincent, and it's such a important aspect of the war and just simply because of location, because of its ability to supply and be a place of refuge in, in the midst of the war. And Colonel Clark says, you know, I ain't having that. I'm going up there. And I just want to remind you, this is the 29th of January, Okay. I'm talking, it's got to be cold. It's got to be incredibly cold. And it's got to be below freezing. You'll find out why in just a minute, how we know this. But um, at least it was cold enough for it to snow. I'll put it that way. There wasn't a lot in this journal about ice, but it, there was a lot about it being cold. So a few things happened from January up till the first few days of of uh, February, which basically had a whole lot to do with, and I'm not going to read every one of these, but there's a whole lot of journal entries on the things that were put together. So they built a, they built several boats, they uh, raft type structures that they hauled, and they could utilize those to ford rivers. Uh, they were in the business of just putting together. When I say something that could ford a river or go over a river, it was actually something that it was basically like building a wagon, you all. They would build these things and they could drag them behind uh, mules and stuff of that nature and put a lot of supplies on them and carry. So one of the things that happened is a lot of these military campaigns like this, they would have their personal effects in their possible bags and they would have their rifleman's pouch and stuff of that nature, but they would also have 
on these flotillas, if you will, that went down the rivers as well as the things that were hauled behind the mules, uh, a fair amount of, you know, like salted meats and, and uh, salts and other powder supplies and any number of uh, accoutrements that they might be utilizing. So uh, here they, on the 5th of February, it is stated here, this. About 3 o'clock, we crossed the Kaskaskia with our baggage and marched about a league from town. Fair and drizzly weather. We began our march early, made a good march for about nine hours. The road very bad with mud and water. We pitched our camp in a square, baggage in the middle, every company to guard their own squares. A lot of things there that stand out to me. We used to work with uh, Ronnie Van Zandt of, of Ironside Defense, and we taught a tactical survival class. And one of the things that we did is that was basically a um, unplanned event where you'd be out in the woods armed with like-minded people, and you had to secure a camp. And basically what these men are doing here is they're doing exactly that. So they would set up in small groups and they would put all their important supplies in the center of a square. Uh, I would beg to say that it should be a, a circle. But but uh, they would put those supplies in the square and then each individual group of men were responsible for that square. That way, that way if they were attacked by chance, and there's no chance of that happening really <laughs> because the weather sucks they would not lose everything at one time so that was really important continuing on on the 8th of february we marched through we marched early through the waters which we now began to meet in those large and level plains where from the flatness of the country the water rests a considerable time before it drains off notwithstanding which our men were in great spirits though much fatigued so they're tired and they're hiking nine ten hours or hiking they're marching nine or ten hours a day they're soaking wet there is no such thing as a rain jacket you all there is no waterproof boots they are soaked to the bone and here's what he says our men were in great spirits now i point that out because later on he's writing about how they're not in great spirits for good reason but at this point, after several days of marching, they're still in good spirits. On the 9th, they made another day's march, fair the part of the day, which means there was no rain. On the 10th, they crossed the river at the Petite Fork upon trees that were fell for that purpose. The water being so high, there was no fording it, still raining and no tents, encamped near the river, stormy weather. So basically what's happening there, because they don't have the ability to swim some of the the livestock that's that's uh, that they're using and butchering as well as what's hauling their gear so they basically felled a bunch of trees and built a bridge and when i say they felt a bunch of trees they didn't have chainsaws they didn't have bulldozers they cut a bunch of trees down with some axing boys and girls uh, with some axes and and then they forded the river like that i'm just telling you man this stuff blows my mind all right on the 11th they crossed the saline river nothing extraordinary this day Except, you know, they, I mean, here's his journal entry. We crossed the Saline River. Nothing extraordinary this day, extraordinary this day. Except the fact that they walked for nine or ten hours. They didn't have Iken boots. They were walking around in some sort of moccasin or uh, sole shoe that was covered in just thick leather. Uh, there was no padding in the shoe. It was like walking around on a board. Kills me, man. All right, so on the 12th, they marched across Cot Plains, 
saw and killed numbers of buffaloes. The road very bad from the immense quantity of rain that had fallen. The men much fatigued and camped on the edge of the woods. This plain or meadow being 15 or more miles across. It was late in the night before the baggage and troops got together. Now 21 miles from St. Vincent. Man, there's a whole lot. I mean, that, that one little journal entry there has got a whole lot. So they killed buffalo. Uh, they probably ate the tongues, probably pulled out the tenderloins. If you don't know what the tenderloins are, just basically the back straps, maybe the tenderloins up inside the the uh, body cavity, the what's called the true tenderloins. Uh, they would more than likely at this point in time, they would probably have the ability to build fires and steal without giving away their position to to an enemy. And so they're probably cooking some blood to get some nutrition from it, uh, along with some water. But uh the immense quantity of rain that had fallen left them pretty fatigued. And so you can imagine, they'd just been walking in the rain. So again, I'm going to say it again. I'll probably say it a bunch of times. This is near the end of January, beginning of February. In that part of the world, it's cold, you all. I could not find anything, and I looked really hard to find something that could give us an indication of what the temperature was. And I just, I'm sorry, but I just could not find it. On the 13th, they arrived early at the two Wabashes. Although a league asunder, they now made but one. We set to making a canoe. That basically means everything's just basically out of the out of the banks. On the 14th, they finished the canoe and put her into the river about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, it doesn't say, and I couldn't find anything else, that told us how big this canoe was. But when I'm saying a canoe, there here's how you build a canoe back in the day. You, you do two things. You use a tomahawk to do a lot of digging and cutting. You, lose that, you use axes to cut it down. More often than not, they would use something like a, a tree that they would find real close to the water. So that could be a big uh, birch bark canoe or something of that nature. So they could take the bark off of a birch tree and make a canoe. But in this case, they, uh, from what I could gather, and I'm not certain about this, so don't hold me to this. They built a real dugout canoe where they built a, took a log and built a canoe. That's, you all, that's a crap ton of work. Now, sometimes they would build fires in the canoe and let the fire itself burn through the wood to actually uh, do a considerable amount of the work for them. But uh, nevertheless, both of those are real, real involved hunks of work. On the 16th, they marched all day through rain and water, crossed the Fox River. Our provisions began to be short. That's important. Keep that in mind, in the back of your mind. On the 17th, we marched early, crossed several runs very deep, sent Mr. Kennedy, our commissary, with three men to cross the river, embarrass, if possible, and proceed to a plantation opposite Post St. Vincent in order to steal boats or canoes to ferry us across the Wabash, about an hour by sun, we got near the niv- the river Embarrass. When I say Embarrass, you all, that's the name of the river, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. We found the country all overflowed with water. We strove to find the Wabash. So there's so much water, they can't even tell where the Dagon River is. Okay. Now keep in mind, back then, uh, due to no dams, that most rivers when it wasn't the rainy season, would be something you could basically just walk across. I mean, it'd be like a creek uh, for us or a small stream for us here in, in this day and age. But but back then, if there was a lot of heavy rain, like is indicated in these journals, then what they were running into was just waters everywhere, and you just have no idea where the actual river is. 
So continuing on, this again is still on the 17th. We still kept marching on, but after some time, Mr. Kennedy and his party returned, found it impossible to cross the embarrassed river. We found the water falling from a small spot of ground, stayed there the remainder of the night, drizzly and dark weather. They basically found a uh, clean water stream. So they set up camp there. That's another indicator of, of uh, for us in survival. How important is that to be able to find spring water in the midst of something like that? On the 18th, at the break of day, Governor Hamilton's morning gun, which means he... He has a morning gun, and they could hear it. They were getting close enough. We set off and marched down the river, saw some fine land. About 2 o'clock came to the bank of the Wabash, made rafts for four men to cross and go up to town and steal boats. But they spend day and night in the water to no purpose, for there was not one foot of dry land to be found. <laughs> it's incredible, man. It's absolutely incredible. On the 19th, Captain McCarty's company set to making a canoe, and at 3 o'clock the four men returned after spending the night on some old logs in the water. Did you get that? So there was no place, absolutely no place for them to find dry land to set up a camp. So they basically slept for the night laying on a bunch of logs, probably floating around. How about that for mindset development? How about that for... Finding something that you can take with you that you can make a hammock out of. Wow. The canoe finished. Captain McCarty, with three of his men, embarked in the canoe and made the third attempt to steal boats. But he soon returned, having discovered four large fires about a league distant from our camp, which seemed to him to be the fires of whites and Indians. Immediately, Colonel Clark sent two men in a canoe down to meet the bateau. With orders to come on day and night, that being our last hope, and we starving. Many of the men much cast down, particularly the volunteers. No provisions of any sort now for two days. Hard fortune, exclamation point, he says. First time he's put an exclamation point in the notes. So for two days, the people haven't eaten anything. The volunteers, the, the brave uh, militia that is so integral to our history here in America that so many people still uh, hold ties to, including myself. The, these, these volunteers, they weren't getting paid, you all. Now, some of these were professional soldiers, so they were getting a wage that would be embarrassing to us in this day and age. But, I mean, just terrible. I mean, just cents on the dollar on what we make today. But they had no food for two days. All right. If you want to get an idea, just right now, don't eat for two days. Yeah. 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 Now, add to that, you've been walking through the water for the last 40 miles. You slept on a log. It's cold. You're pruned up like a daggone, I don't know, a dead grape. So, yeah. Terrible. Terrible, you all. All right. So, moving on. The 20th. Camp, very quiet but hungry, some almost in despair. Many of the Creole volunteers take talking of returning. Those are the uh, uh, French volunteers coming out of Louisiana. Fell to making more canoes when, about 12 o'clock, our sentry on the river brought to a boat with five Frenchmen from the post who told us we were not as yet discovered, that the inhabitants were well disposed towards us, etc., 
Captain Willing's brother, who was taken in the fort, had made his escape to us, and that one Masonville, with a party of Indians, was then seven days in pursuit of him, with much news, more news to our favor, such as repairs done, the fort, the strength, etc., etc. They informed us of two canoes they had been seen adrift some distance above us, ordered that Captain Worthington, with a party, go in search of them, return late with only with one only. One of one of our men killed a deer, which brought into the camp very acceptable. So again, this is this is his journal. So I'm trying my best to read it as it's written. So it's it's got some, uh, you know, old English style to it, and and he sounds like he's a very well educated person to be able to write a journal of this magnitude at this time. But he's definitely got that frontier writing. If you ever take time to read that, you'll see that. Just, you know, he, I mean, think about this dude. He's writing this journal while he's out there. I mean, how's he keeping his paper dry? Is he writing on a leather skin? What's he writing with? And how's he get it back? I mean, it's still preserved. It just, it blows my mind, man. It just blows my mind. The importance that somebody saw in just the taking of their notes. You know, I made a video several years ago for Nature Reliance School on YouTube, and I think it's still out there somewhere, where I talked about the most important book that I owned. And I still consider this the most important book I owned. And I held up in my hand a big stack. I've got stacks and stacks of notebooks. In my mind, as far as Wood's experience and Wood's education, those are the best notes in the world. Because they're the ones that I took out in the middle of the woods while I was trying stuff or watching wildlife or studying a track or drawing a leaf or any number of things. I have a stack of notebooks that's, you know, very, very thick. And, you know, it's one of those things. I try to impress upon people the need to get out and take notes and study and, and get involved and, and that sort of thing. And, and it was just lost. I mean, it's just lost on people that are on YouTube because they'd rather just watch a YouTube video. Okay. So with that said... Uh, think about how cool it was that after not eating for several days, so now they're out to three days and they haven't eaten and some dude kills a deer. Dude, they probably ate that thing raw. I'm just telling you. They didn't, but I know that somebody ate some of it raw. I guarantee you somebody ate some of it raw. They were that hungry. 21st, at the break of day, began to ferry our men over in our two canoes to a small hill called, and he didn't know the name of it, but he wrote Mamel. And uh, he's not sure if that's the title of the hill. Captain Williams with two men went to look for a passage and were discovered by two men in a canoe, but could not fetch them to. The whole army being over, we thought to get to town that night. So plunged into the water, sometimes to the neck. Yeah. If you're thinking they're in neck deep water, they are. For more than one league, when we stopped on the next hill, the same name. There being no dry land on any side for in, for many leagues. Our pilots say that we cannot get along. That is impossible. The whole army being over, we encamped. Rain all this day, no provisions. So they went a league distance. And they were walking in neck deep water. Now, this is the part that George Rogers Clark is famous for because again, maybe we'll cover this in another podcast on another day, but this fort is so vitally important 
to the revolution. And George Rogers Clark knew it. Now, you've got a bunch of people that aren't getting paid a single dime. They're not getting paid anything. And at this point, they're not getting much food at all. All day that day, when they walk through this water that is literally neck deep, there are no provisions. Listen, guys and gals, they don't have waterproof bags. They're carrying all their leather in, I mean, they're carrying all their black powder, all their um, accoutrement for their rifles in leather bags wrapped in some sort of oil skin and they're still up neck deep so basically what they're doing is they're probably as some journals have indicated from this time frame they're probably taking their rifle they're probably taking their rifleman's pouch maybe even their postal's bag and they're holding it above their head as they walk for how far is a league? I wish I knew. It's it's far enough that I ain't going to hold some flint-like rifle that uh, above my head for that long. It's just incredible. I mean, in this day and age, I don't know that I could do that. I work out and all this stuff, and, man, it's fun. But these were men, you all. These were men's men right here. So on the 22nd, moving on, Colonel Clark encourages men, which gave them great spirits. That said something. That That's what I was talking about earlier. He must have been one heck of a motivator. We marched on in the waters. Those that were weak and famished from so much fatigue went in the canoes. We came one league farther to some sugar camps where we stayed all night. Heard the evening and morning guns from the fort. No provisions yet. Lord help us. All right, so I, I put a pause while I was recording and looked up a league. A league is 3.452 miles. So thinking back, they just walked neck deep. <laughs> neck deep with their rifles above their heads, along with their possible's pouch, which contained powder and ball, uh, patching material, probably some beeswax to do little things, wrapped up in oil skin, possible's bag. They probably had some sort of of um, you know wool blanket that was basically their only bedding that they carried with them carrying that above their head for 3.452 miles yeah you see why i just this is incredible all right on the 22nd colonel clark encourages his men which gave them great spirits i can see why he had to do that again he, as i said earlier he's a incredible motivator no provisions yet. Lord help us. So yeah, they're seeking out God, literally, in his journal, in his prayers. And that's how they're going to, to go about getting provisions in their mind. Just incredible, you all. All right, I highlighted this one. This, this is important. On the 23rd, they set off to cross the plain called Horseshoe Plain, about four miles long, all covered with water, breast high. Here we expected some of our brave men must certainly perish, having frozen in the night and so long fasting. Having no other resource but wading this plain, or rather lake, of waters, we plunged into it with courage. Colonel Clark being first, lead from the front, boys and girls, lead from the front. Just incredible. Colonel Clark being first, taking care to have the boats try to take those that were weak and numbed with cold into them. 
Never were men so animated with the thought of avenging the wrongs done to their back settlements as this small army was. I've got to say that again. Listen to this. You want to know why they were doing this? Here's why. Never were men so animated with the thought of avenging the wrongs done to their back settlements as this small army was. Payback, boys and girls. That's what that's called. Payback. They're getting ready to get some payback. And there's some more. You'll understand why on some of the things here in a minute. About one o'clock, we came in sight of the town. We halted on a small hill of dry land called Warren's, also called Warrior's Island, where we took a prisoner hunting ducks, who informed us that no person suspected our coming at that season of the year. <laughs> no crap. <laughs> it's crazy, man. It's kind of like when Washington crossed the Delaware. Mo a lot more people know about Washington crossing the Delaware than they do of George Rogers Clark walking neck deep. Neck deep for miles and miles of water. But, yeah, no one suspected they'd be coming up there in that weather. You'd have to be crazy. Colonel Clark wrote a letter by him to the inhabitants in the following manner. So this is a letter that Colonel Clark was sending to the, to the uh, general, uh, to Governor Hamilton at Vincennes. Listen to this. This is fantastic. Gentlemen, being now with... Within two miles of your village with my army, determined to take your fort this night, and not being willing to surprise you, I take this method to request such of you as our true citizens, and willing to enjoy the liberty I bring you, to remain still in your houses, and those, if any there be, who are friends to the king, will instantly repair to the fort and join the hair buyer, general, um, this is alluding to the fact that Governor Hamilton had offered rewards for the scalps of Americans and fight like men. Let me read that again. I'll take out that uh, stuff in the parentheses so it makes more sense. I bring you to remain still in your houses and those, if there be, who are friends to the king, will instantly repair to the fort and join the hair buyer general and fight like men. And if any such as do not go to the fort shall be discovered afterwards, they may depend on severe punishment. On the contrary, those who are true friends to liberty may depend upon being well treated. And I once more request them to keep out of the streets. <laughs> Listen to this last. For every one I find in arms on my arrival, I shall treat as an enemy. Signed, G.R. Clark. Now, I, when I read that, I think of two things. Number one, he's such a gentleman, uh, scholar, warrior, right? I mean, he's basically saying, hey, we're getting ready to kick your tail, but we're going to give you an option to surrender, basically. Uh, I don't want to harm anybody if I don't have to. Uh, please, please don't make me uh, kill you. Um, just give us what we want. And, uh, But at the same time, if you decide that you want to fight, by golly, we're going to fight. Now, we know you slept in your bed last night. Here, here's Craig Cottle's edition. Now, we know you slept in your bed last night. We know you got a full belly. And please know that my dudes over here have been walking in neck-deep water for several miles after walking several hundred miles just to get here. And we're hungry. But we're still going to kick your butt. Dude. <laughs> 
It's awesome. I love history. Golly, I love history. And moving on, here's from the journal. This is not from uh, uh, George Rogers Clark letter. In order to give time to publish this letter, which basically means get it over to them so they can read it, we laid still till about sundown when we began our march, all in order with colors flying and drums braced. Put those flags up. Love it. After wading to the edge of the water breast high, we mounted the rising ground the town is built on about 8 o'clock. Lieutenant Bailey, with 14 regulars, was detached to fire on the fort while we took possessions of the town. In order to stay still, or, or stay till, he was relieved by another party, which was soon done. We did reconnaissance about to find a place to throw up an entrenchment, found one, and set Captain Bowman's company to work. Soon crossed the main street. That means when he says Captain Bowman, he's talking about himself there. Soon crossed the main street about 120 yards from the first gate. We were informed that Captain Lamoth, with a party of 25 men, was out on a scout who had heard our firing and came back. We sent a party to intercept them but missed them. However, we took one of their men and one Captain Masonville, a principal man, the rest making their escape under the cover of the night into the fort. The cannon played smartly. Not one of our men wounded. Men in the fort badly wounded. Fine sport for the Sons of Liberty. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, I love it. Fine, I'm going to say that again. Fine sport for the Sons of Liberty. <laughs> Man, that needs to go on a t-shirt if I've ever heard anything that needs to go on a t-shirt. All right. 24th, again, that was on, the battle started, you all. They are kicking butt and taking names, and none of their dudes, the hungry dudes, the ones that have been in the water for miles, none of them are hurt. On the 24th, as soon as daylight, the fort began to play her small arms briskly. One of our men got slightly wounded. About 9 o'clock, the colonel, that's Colonel Clark, George Rogers Clark, sent a flag with a letter to Governor Hamilton. The firing then ceased, during which time our men were provided with breakfast, it being the only meal of victuals since the 18th. Okay, so this is the 24th, you all. That's six days that they haven't had any food. Six whole days that they have not had any food. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not man enough to even read this. <laughs> As I'm reading this, I'm real. I'm not man enough to read this, let alone do this. Wow. This is just incredible, man. All right. So here we are. Colonel Clark sends the letter, and this is what the letter said. Sir, in order to save yourself from the impending storm that now threatens you, I order you to surrender yourself with all your garrison, stores, etc., 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 for I am obligated to storm. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. For I am obliged to storm. You may depend on such treatment as is justly due a murderer. Beware of destroying stores of any kind or any papers or letters that are in your possession. For by heavens, if you do, there shall be no mercy on you. Listen. All right. Craig Cottle is going to translate for you. Listen. Do what I tell you to do. Or I'm going to smack you down. I'm going to put you down, you little dog. So, yeah, he's telling him, don't destroy any papers. Hey, that's intelligence, you all. Uh, 
G.R. Clark knows that sort of intelligence is invaluable. He might have captured letters that reported numbers to the the different uh, entities that needed that information, and so he knows it's important. Here's the answer that Governor Hamilton gave him, and I'm definitely going to have to translate this one for you. Governor Hamilton begs Lee to acquaint Colonel Clark that he and his garrison are not disposed to be awed into an action unworthy of British subjects. He's saying, nope, we ain't doing none of that. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, man. Dumb move. Dumb move, Governor Hamilton. So, outside of the, the letter, here's what happens next in the journal. The firing then began very hot on both sides. None of our men wounded. Several of the men in the fort wounded through the potholes, through the portholes, which caused Governor Hamilton to send out a flag with the following letter. So basically, if you've ever been to a frontier fort, you'll see these little hoes that are on the side of it. Those are riflemen's hoes. And so it was a way to get behind protection and shoot through it. These men, I'm going to set it up again. I have to keep doing this. Okay, I just have to. Hungry. They actually did get some food after six days, but they're still hungry. There ain't no doubt about it. They're weak. They're cold. They're wet. They've been wet for weeks. We, I mean, they didn't get wet and dried off and went to bed after spending a week studying survival. These cats have been wet for weeks and haven't been dry. There ain't no drying out, son. Are you listening? It's incredible. So Governor Hamilton sends this letter out. Governor Hamilton proposes to Colonel Clark a truce for three days, during which time he proposes there shall be no defensive work carried on in the garrison on condition that Colonel Clark shall observe on his part a like cessation of any offensive work. That is, he wishes to confer with Colonel Clark as soon as can be and promises that whatever may pass between these two and another person mutually agreed upon to be present shall remain secret till matters be finished, as he wishes that whatever the result of their conference, it may be to the honor and credit of each party. If Colonel Clark makes a difficulty of coming into the fort, Lieutenant Governor Hamilton will speak to him by the gate. So Craig Cottle's translation is this. Dude, let's stop this crap for about three days. Uh, I don't want you to be doing anything to make it easier for you to uh, fight my fort. I'm going to tell you I'm not going to do anything in my fort, but behind the walls, we're going to be doing everything we can to get ready for you. But I will meet you at the gate. Come up to the door. Let's see what happens. Man. Okay. Here's the thing. Well, let me just read it. Let me just read it. Then I'll, then I'll add my, my uh, whatever to it. Colonel Clark's answer. I love this. George Rogers Clark. Dude, I'm just telling you, it just makes me tickled pink to know that I graduated from George Rogers Clark High School because of stuff like this right here. Here's his answer. Colonel Clark's compliments to Governor Hamilton and begs to inform him that he will not agree to any other terms than that of Mr. Hamilton's surrendering himself and garrison prisoners at discretion. If Mr. Hamilton is desirous of a conference with Colonel Clark, he will meet him at the church with Captain Helm. February 24, 1779. All right, GRC. This is is what he put at the end of it, GRC. So that's, you know, when I was playing baseball at GRC, 
had that GRC across my chest on my hat. Son, son, you come to play ball when you played ball. <laughs> oh, wow, this is awesome. So, yeah, um, here's what could have happened. This is this happened in another times where they would meet at the gate. If you've seen Last of the Mohicans, you actually saw this in a scene um, in that where uh, in that movie where uh, the gray hair went and met with the French. Who was it? I can't remember now. But anyway, they meet and confer at the gate, and they share some notes, and then they agree to meet out on the battlefield later to make it real official and all this stuff. And a lot of times during those uh, transfers of information, people in the fort would grab somebody and just tomahawk them right there. I mean, just kill them. So that's uh, that's unfortunate. Clark is like, uh-uh, son, I ain't doing that. I'm just, it ain't going to happen. So he tells him he'll meet him at a different location. And so he, uh, he agrees to do that. So the messenger returned with the above answer during which time came a party of Indians down the hill behind the town who had been sent, <clears throat> who had been sent by governor Hamilton to get some scalps and prisoners from the falls of the Ohio. Our men having got news of it, pursued them, killed two on the spot, wounded three, took six prisoners, brought them into town. Two of them proving to be white men that they took prisoners. We released them and brought the Indians to the main street before the fort gate. There, tomahawked them and threw them into the river, during which time Colonel Clark and Governor Hamilton met at the church. Governor Hamilton produced certain articles of capitulation with his name signed to them, which we which were refused. The colonel told him he would consult with his officers and let him know the terms he would capitulate on. And here's the terms. Now, before I get into these terms, let me let me say what's going on here. If you're not familiar with scalp taking, okay, basically um, it, it's difficult when you hire people as mercenaries to do your work in warfare to to have them do what you've asked them to do and then prove it. So one of the things that happened is that different entities would pay um, scout trackers, both, you know, those were frontiersmen, uh, depending upon who they worked for, and oftentimes the Indians. And the Indians get a reputation for taking scalps more than the whites, but, but uh, the Europeans that came into this part of the world, they got into scalp taking too. Whether they were French or for English or whoever it might be, uh, a lot of scouts were taken by Americans, French, Indians. Uh, they were taken by um, uh, the English as well. And what this was used for is for payment. And so basically you could take the scalps and give them to Governor Hamilton and he would pay you because you killed X amount of people. And so that is why scalping was done. It's, a, it's, just, it's just a way of, it's basically an invoice. Hey, I've got this invoice. You need to pay me my money now. So in the midst of this battle, uh, Governor Hamilton had sent out a bunch of people to, to a bunch of these natives to go out and gather scalps, and they had done exactly that. And in, because this is one of the things that the Americans had major problems with because they were sending, they were sending uh, these men out, these Indians out, and they were doing this, and they were just killing people that were living on the frontier. And uh, they were very vicious about doing it. And again, I'm just, I'm not saying it was just Native Americans. It was done on both sides. But the point being is that, and this is another thing that you can see in Last of the Mohicans where there was a war party that went into the family that, that um, 
Chingachakook and 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 again, when I say Last Mohegans, a lot of people have seen Last of the Mohegans that might not know history, and so I'm just trying to give you a visual. But when the war party went in and killed the family that were so close to Chingachakook and and uh, Hawkeye and Uncas, and they went and saw their bodies that were laying around the cabin, the cabin had been burned out and all that stuff. Um, the little boy, if you look in the movie and watch that movie, I'm pretty sure there's a part of a scene there where you can see where they took the scalp of that kid. And so it's just a, you know, it's just a visual historical representation. Um, you know, obviously it's a narrative. I'm not saying that actually happened exactly that way or anything, but that it's, it is a story to illustrate some of the things that happened. So here are the terms. One. Lieutenant Governor Hamilton engages to deliver up to Colonel Clark Fort Sackville as it is at present with all the stores, etc., etc., etc. Basically, all the stuff there it belongs to me. Number two, the garrison are to deliver themselves as prisoners of war and march out with their arms and accoutrement, etc., etc. When you see this word accoutrement, it's more of a French word, but accoutrements, you'll hear it said both ways. I get all French fry on that one and say accoutrement. All right, number three, the garrison to be delivered up at 10 o'clock tomorrow. That means all the, all the war stuff belongs to him. Number four, three days time to be allowed the garrison to settle their accounts with the inhabitants and traders of this place. So they had stores and they had trading that was being happened and they wanted to give them time to do that. Number five, the officers of the garrison to be allowed the necessary baggage, etc., etc. So he was giving the officers of Governor Hamilton under his leadership uh, a little extra. You can you can carry your stuff basically. And again, this a lot of the a lot of the I keep going back to Last Mohegans because number number one, it's one of my most favorite movies, and it's really a composite of a bunch of different things that happened in frontier history. You know, it's a movie that's over two how you know slightly over two hours long. Okay, so think about this. Um, the the French can't remember that guy's name in the movie, but the French general that defeated the gray hair uh, told him, "Feel free, tell your officers they can you can carry your colors with pride." And so with that, uh, that's basically what's happening here: is that George Rogers Clark is saying, "Listen, I understand your military officers; they can take some stuff with them." Okay, on the 25th, here's what happens. Okay, whoa, 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 sorry, I missed an important part. Signed on 24th of Jan uh, February 1779. Next post in the journal is this. Agreed to for the following reasons. The remoteness of Secur, the state and quantity of provisions, unanimous. Unanimity of officers and men in its expediency, the honorable terms allowed, and lastly, the confidence in a generous enemy. Signed, Henry Hamilton. So Hamilton agreed. He knew he was getting ready to get squashed like a bug. And he knew that that um, George Rogers Clark was giving him a lot here. So that's it, you all. There's so much more. I, I could talk about the rest of what happens here after this. But basically what happens is they, they go in, 
they they don't destroy and kill a bunch of people. They just don't. They had agreed to it as men to go in and uh, take over the fort, and it belonged to George Rogers Clark at this point. Uh, they went in um, and into the uh, patter stores and everything of that nature, and they gathered some cannons. They gathered some black powder. And one of the things just in the notes that is noted is that Captain Bowman, again, the gentleman that's writing these notes, he got burned when, uh, let me read this one note, there blew up 26 six-pound cartridges in one of the batteries, which burned Captain Bowman and Captain Worthington much, together with four privates. No account of our bateau yet. So basically, while they were moving all this stuff, there was some sort of unfortunate incident where there was a big explosion. Um... Later on, on the 27th, Captain Bowen receives a major's commission enclosed from the governor because his work there. I mean, and he just kind of writes about it. I mean, it's him that's writing this, and he writes about it as if Captain Bowman is somebody else. It's like he's writing in a third person. And it's just because he knows how important it is to relate history. Um, and so, yeah, uh, pretty much it. And... Uh, I, I think that's what I wanted to get across to you all. So think about it, you all. Are you that tough? Are you that tough? I'm not. I'll be honest with you. I would like to say that I'm that tough. I just don't think I am. There may have been a time in my life where I was that tough. I don't know that I could do that this day and age. I don't know that I, I think I would succumb to the weather in that particular situation. I really do. I think it would have got me. But mental perseverance, you all, mental perseverance, as far as survival is concerned, think about how important it is to being able to get through this situation. Because I'm telling you right now, the weather, including the temperatures that were so low, the moisture, because they were soaking wet, everything, the clothes that they had, which were pitiful as far as maintaining core body temperature, all of those things would have set them up to die. I mean, if you just thrust somebody into that situation, they would have died. But the mental perseverance that these men had to overcome that was what kept their bodies warm. Now, is there something to that? Is there a mental something out there that can give us so much you know, some people say so much hate in them. There wasn't any hate in them other than they were going to avenge all these scalps that were taken off the frontier and they they were going to make sure that they got payback. I'll go back this. I love this. Fine sport for the sons of liberty. Man, you probably see where I'm getting at, right? I'm not saying that this is coming. But, man, there sure are a lot of people that wants to destroy liberty in this great country of ours. And I, I just I can't stand the thought of that happening. I mean, think about this history, you all. This history. These, these men. How many of them? It doesn't talk about how many died because evidently none did die on this expedition. They were the long knives. They, and they, they were just renowned after this. And they were long, known as long knives. That's why the history of my knife, I say in the video for my knife, uh, Simon Kenton, Daniel Boone, George Rogers Clark, and then just go on and talk about stuff. And when I say that, that's who I'm talking about, you all. 
These are the people that carried those kind of knives. They used them. They had mental toughness. That's what I'm all about. I, I want to develop mental toughness in all of us, in myself. I want to do what I can to help you. That's why I share stories like this. I recognize my limitations. Maybe I'm working to get past some of those. I would hope that you would too. I'm going to let the last few words of this be the finality for this show today. Uh, I really thank you for indulging me. You can tell I'm pretty excitable about history. I hope I've tried to make it pretty clear what things were coming from the journal and what kind of things were coming from me uh, individually so that you get a good idea. Uh, I'll do what I can to find a link for this where I took this and I'll have it in the notes and hopefully I'll get that to Ben or make sure it's put in the notes for this podcast. So that way you can read this for yourself and, and share because there's a lot more to it. Here we go. This journal was taken from Major Bowman and revised by a person who was in the expedition. He has kept it for his own amusement, but it does not come near what might be written upon such an extraordinary occasion. Had it been handled by a person who chose to enlarge upon it, it afforded matter enough to treat on. The season of the year, when undertaken, and the good conduct shows what might have been done with an army, let the difficulties be what they will. Persevering and steadiness will surmount them all, as was the case with our brave commander and all his officers, not forgetting his soldiers. Although a handful in comparison to other armies, they have done themselves and the cause they were fighting for credit and honor and deserve a place in history for future ages, that their posterity may know the difficulty their fathers, their forefathers have gone through for liberty and freedom particularly the back settlers of Virginia may bless the day they sent out such a commander, officers, and men. I say to root out that nest of vipers that was every day ravaging on their women and children, which I hope will soon be at an end as the leaders of these murderers will soon be taken and sent to Congress. God save the Commonwealth. Funny. So there you have it. That's it, you all. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do, let me know because I'll be doing more of these. Check us out on the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. I'll probably be doing these about once a week over there or as often as people want to hear them. Um, oh, man. I'm humbled by it. I hope you've been humbled by it, too. A lot of lessons there. So, for us here at the Survival Show Podcast, keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. Stay sharp.